Hello and welcome to Chatty AF, the anime feminist podcast. As promised for our seasonal episodes, there simply wasn't room to talk about the latest Gundam series in a uh, medley-style roundup. So we have decided to dedicate an entire episode to the first 12 episodes of Mobile Suit Gundam, The Witch from Mercury. My name is Vry. I am uh, a managing content editor at Anime Feminist. You can find me and the freelance stuff I post on Twitter, at Writer Vry. And with me today, I have two special guests and Gundam experts, Maddie and Megan. Uh, Maddie, do you want to go first? Shall I? Um, I can go first. So my name is Maddie. You can find me pretty much anywhere at Hyakushiki0087. My pronouns are they, she, and I've loved all things Gundam for, gosh, nearly two decades now. It feels like forever. <laughs> and on to you, Megan. Oh, well, I am Megan D. I'm a brainchild129 on Twitter. I have been running the Manga Test Drive blog uh, for over 10 years now. And I'm glad to be back on Chatty AF to talk about one of my favorite franchises. It's true. Yes, uh, folks may recognize Megan from the Glass Masks, Glass Mask episodes, or the uh, Hot Gimmick Drink Along. Oh boy! <laughs> um, and uh, Maddie, I don't, I don't know if our listeners will know you, but uh, certainly the folks in the the Texas cosplay uh, scene are familiar with you. But as I mentioned, we are here today because you both know a heck of a lot about Gundam. Uh, before we dive into that, uh. I just want to note up top that this is a spoiler cast. Obviously, we don't yet know what will happen in part two. That's going to be airing in the spring. But we will be covering details of everything for the first 12 episodes. If after, I think, after we do some basic discussion. So, you know, after about 10 minutes in, you have been warned. (laughs) All right. So now... For those of you at home, uh, The Witch from Mercury aired this past winter, uh, this past fall. It started uh, in the fall 2022 season. It was announced in September 2021, which made it the first Gundam series in the main line, not including Build Fighters and other spinoffs like that, since uh, Okatamari's Iron-Blooded Orphans. So it's kind of a big deal that there was a lot of anticipation around. Uh, The director is Kobayashi Hiroshi, who, speaking of Okatamari, was the director of uh, Dragon Pilot, uh, Hisone and Masotan, uh, as well as more recently the Netflix Spriggan anime. The series composer, though, perhaps most interestingly for Anifem audiences, uh, was Okochi Ichiro, who has done an absolute boatload of things uh, he was the series composer for Osmagadayo, for angelic layer for devilman crybaby uh for two of the more recent lupon series for skate the infinity and most relevantly for how this series has started to develop he wrote the two light novel side stories for revolutionary girl utena and worked on that series as well uh, I should also note, this is not his first go-around with Gundam. He actually wrote four episodes of Turn A Gundam back in 1999. Oh, the series that, that people like and that I desperately wish we could do a podcast about, but it's not legally streaming anywhere. Right. Frustrating. Unfortunately. Uh, I've heard good things about that. So. That's very good. Yeah, I would love to watch more Gundam, I, but I think I am not alone in folks at home who, uh, who feel a little bit intimidated by the size and length of the franchise. Uh, for context, the only Gundam I have seen in total is Gundam 00, which I know is a considerable outlier uh, format-wise. My partner is a big nostalgic fan of Gundam Wing, and of course I have absorbed various details from the Gundam-loving people in my life. But otherwise, I am... I am pretty unawares of the finer details of this massive, you know, half century long property, which, and I wanted to reassure people that, at least for me, I did not have any trouble watching and enjoying Witch for Mercury. 
Yeah, I know that some people can be really intimidated by, I guess for lack of a better phrase, the homework you have to do, particularly if you get into the Universal Century timeline. But speaking as someone who's seen more than her fair share of Gundam, this might be one of the most newbie-friendly AU Gundams in a long time. Yeah, do you guys want to explain the um, the sort of the Universal Century versus AU thing? Maddie, do you think you want to tackle this one? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, Universal Century is the main timeline written by Gundam creator Yoshiyuki Tomino, and generally by fans and by most critics too. Universal Century is seen as pretty good. There is gen- a general timeline. The first three series and the movie that follows those three is seen as like one continuous timeline and then there's offshoots from that you know some either more in the recent future or later future some in the recent past like Gundam Origin and then there's AU Gundam which is you know using typical Gundam themes and of course giant robots to tell a completely different story. AU Gundam can be, um, by most standards, hit or miss. <laughs> some are really awesome, um, and some are not. Some are, like, everybody universally thinks is awesome. Like, if you think that Turn A Gundam is AU, which I personally think it is, there's contention around that too. Um, Turn A is universally loved by most people. Meanwhile, there are shows like Gundam Seed, which most people don't like. And then there are some shows like Gundam X that either people really like or really hate, and it's 50-50. I'm on the Gundam X-loving team, personally. <laughs> but, so, with an AU Gundam that got announced here, there was a bit of hesitance. I was on the hesitant team at first. I liked, you know, generally who was on staff, but I was also a little hesitant just because of the, gosh, past 15 years of bad AU Gundam with how the first season is either from alright to great, and then the second season will always just fall in on itself every single Yes, I did time. mention I watched Double um, O, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. Ribbons is the only thing that's redeeming in that I really don't like Double O. I really don't. Don't, don't make me uh, fight, fight but, you about Tyria. So, anyway, we're moving on. <laughs> but yeah, so basically TLDR, you see uni- universally seen as good because I personally like Tomino's writing. Megan made the <laughs> But generally, <laughs> generally, Tomino's writing is enjoyed and whoever he works with also, you know, if Tomino isn't the strongest, there's somebody else that's, you know, doing the heavy lifting here that will tie everything all together in a nice neat bow. AU, will it even tie into a bow? I think they just tied a knot a few times on a few of them and called it a day and they're still tripping over their shoelaces. <laughs> So that's, I mean, honestly, that's as brief as it gets with uh, UC versus AU. Gundam mm. on that one. It's, I think, maybe maybe it's because I've come into the franchise backwards, but I honestly really enjoy, or at least I am fascinated by and often enjoy how the AU Gundams that I'm most, which are the ones I'm most familiar with and I think are easiest to get into for new fans who are like, what's a char? Um, I like how the, War in the Pocket exists. It's six episodes yeah. long. Uh-huh. It's very good. But I, it is interesting to me that even when a Gundam is not working into the main timeline, they always seem to return to not just similar themes of, you know, anti-war and uh, the progress of humanity and all of that, but character archetypes and plot points seem to get remixed fairly frequently, which I think is just fascinating. Like, you have... Um, the the concept of the new type like these sort of uh new agey sort of psychic characters uh mm-hmm. shows up you know in double o they're not called new types they're called innovators but it's the same principle in and here in which from mercury you've kind of seen that folded into the thing that is being called the gundam itself where the gund system has that that principle of you know being able to psychically connect and see other people's hearts and such Yeah, it's the one thing that kind of unifies all of the franchise, regardless of whether it's UC or AU, regardless of whether the show is good or bad. It's these, you know, these these common themes, these common archetypes that come through. And and don't feel bad about your own Gundam history. Like, I came into it a weird way, too. I got into it through a manga, specifically Gundam The Origin. And then I just kind of 
pick and chose what OVAs or shows I wanted to watch. You've you've talked up the origin quite a lot for folks uh, as a, a good entry point for folks who are kind of curious about the original Tomino stuff, but maybe are don't want to go into fifty episodes of uh, of seventies. Yeah, I admittedly uh, have talked extensively about this elsewhere. Uh, shout out to my friends over at Giant Robot FM, which is a, a lovely mecha podcast. But yeah, it, it's it's a very accessible way to kind of digest the original story of Mobile Suit Gundam with a, a slightly more modern perspective, since it was written by the show's uh, character designer, animation director, many different roles. And it's just really gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, I... I think this is something we should address up top because one of the things that has proved, well, that proved contentious by uh, annoying people before it came out um, and is just notable in general is that Witch from Mercury is the first Gundam to have a, a, a female, not just a prominent female character, but a female pilot protagonist. Yes. She's not the first female Gundam pilot, that could be traced back to 0080 War in the Pocket, but Christina was not the main character of that work, where Suleta most distinctly is. And um, some of the more argumentative parts of Anna Twitter had issue with that. Oh, they did. Oh, boy, they did. Ugh. Yeah, and I think it is fair to say that Gundam as a franchise, and maybe Tomino specifically, but as a franchise as a whole, has a... Um, up and down relationship with how it writes female characters. Oh boy. I Tomino, yes, but I, I feel like Gundam as a whole definitely has this issue yeah. for sure. I, I would pin the blame on him, but it, it's the whole damn thing. I just want somebody to, to, to do a pitch on just a franchise survey on the weirdness of gender in Gundam, frankly. But alas, we do not have an entire podcast to dedicate to that today. We could. Listen, we could. I might, if people want, I'll have you two back, and you can tell, you can regale me with tales of ways oh, that, no. uh, of of ways that Gundam is weird about women. I would love that. We could just talk about Zeta Gundam, and we could just have a whole podcast dedicated to that series alone. That's a dangerous prospect, because I can go off on that Ugh. a lot. Listeners, I'm not a Zeta hater, but that is a big, that is a big misogynistic. Oh my god. We're not here to talk about that. No, no, we're here to talk about no. how wonderfully surprised I have been about how joyous and wonderful G-Witch turned out to be. Because I, I really had just an exuberant time watching this series from week to week. It, it was one of those, oh, this is why I love anime type shows. <laughs> I, I know I was kind of wary when it was first announced like I, I didn't have any huge expectations for it I, I wanted it to be good because of course i want the first gundam with a female pro tag to be good and again yeah i was just delightfully surprised by just how good and how interesting it was and, and how steady it was right up to the end of the season mm -hmm. yeah it's it is something that i think we don't get to see as often anymore because because of the way production cycles work now, we're more likely to get either single, isolated, 12-episode anime or adaptations of big, long shonen that don't necessarily have an end in sight. You don't get a lot of necessarily original series that get at least 26 episodes. We don't know if Witch from Mercury is going to be longer than two core yet to sort of settle in and really set up a big cast and, and unveil its themes at its leisure. And... It was just so nice to have that here. Like so much of what's going on here is we barely scratch the political intrigue elements. A lot of it is just, here's what these various groups are like. And here's a sort of an introduction episode with where this character is at. And we'll pick that back up in the next part. And I've just missed it so much. Oh, it's fantastic stuff. I mean, what really ultimately got me into Gundam as an older teenager and an adult was the political themes remaining as intriguing as they are and how you could, you know, pick apart at an individual's, an individual series' um, political world building forever. And that's what I love about UC specifically. Tomino does a fantastic job with that. And G-Witch did an equivalently good job with this. It is, it was fantastic. It was episode four, I believe, was a very good intro, like political world building episode. 
I was on the edge of my seat for that one. I love that stuff. I love a little bit of ironic nursery rhyme shit. Um, <laughs> I'm a sucker. Yeah, I, th- I, I think when this sto- show started getting big and started, you know, hitting with folks who aren't necessarily Gundam fans, which I think is wonderful, uh, I saw more than a few folks who did not know that Wow Cool Robot was about Gundam, which was <laughs> wild to me. I, d- I saw that too. That was like, I was like, whoa, what year am I in? What is happening? <laughs> yeah, and I and then I also saw, uh, you know, I'll take that over the people who very earnestly tried to say that, that Witch from Mercury is not political when I think it's the third episode has the, uh, the labor protest on Earth where they're, uh, you know, protesting abuse of laborers and strip mining of resources. And then they get blasted by military artillery. No politics here. Yeah, that was episode three. That was the episode that I was referring mm. to. Or maybe it was four. four. The, it was three or four. It was pretty four early Four is the on. one with, uh, oh, what is his name? I always think of him as new type boy. Elon. Oh, yeah. Elon four. As far as the show's politics, what I find interesting is that normally Gundam is very straightforwardly sociopolitical when it comes to warfare. But G-Witch takes it in a whole new direction in that it's about corporate warfare mm-hmm. and elements of this have shown up in previous Gundam works I mean there's elements of this going back to Zeta Gundam in the mid 80s uh, comes up a little bit unicorn but it's never been so prominent as it is here where literally corporations you know control entire planets and you know, Gundam battles can dictate the rise and fall of somebody's company so what I was thinking, what's different between, let's say, UC Gundam versus G-Witch is that UC Gundam, it is still a, well, what you could say, a unified government sans Xeon. Um, and Anaheim Electronics, which is effectively a defense contractor, is acting between the two off in the distance, still supposedly ha- with some oversight, but clearly it doesn't have any. Um, meanwhile, in G-Witch, imagine if this defense contractor effectively was the government. It's instead of rather just like a, maybe a, instead of a neoliberal or neoconservative style government, it's more of a, I would almost call it corporatist or anarcho-capitalist in some strange way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it takes a different political lens with this one. And I like the change of pace. Instead of having the same political, same style of political hierarchy, it kind of inverts it a bit, and I think that's yeah. Neat. To, to go back to the the meme, and you know, in this case, it's not so much war is bad, so much as capitalism is bad. I'm so into that. Space capitalism mm-hmm. kills. Yeah, that that element that they introduced right from the the episode zero, the prologue episode where we put all our info dumping so that we could just do character work in episode one. Um, I I think that central concept that comes up again and again that this that the gun system was originally a life-saving medical device that was then you know the only way they could get funding was to allow it to be reappropriated as weaponry and military technology and that is some potent shit like yeah like literally it was technology used to help people adapt to space until one company says no we don't like this anymore we're shutting you down permanently yeah it's it's not just a window into how well how um altruistic science can be maybe corrupted isn't quite the word i'm looking for but compromised maybe by what it needs to do to continue its work and you know that question of applied science versus pure science but it allows for a lot of normalized disability representation in a way that I think is super cool. Although I think I think there's a little bit of given uh, a little bit of give and take with Prospera there as she becomes she gets into the grayer end of morally gray. I don't know. It's just it was what really struck me about the series even before the first episode was just straight up revolutionarily girl Utana. <laughs> Oh gosh! And people thought they were exaggerating, and then they watched it and like, no, this this really is Utena <laughs> and Gundam. But uh, going back to the disability talk, yeah, I mean, Prospera makes an impression when literally in the meeting she pulls off her prosthetic arm and throws it at somebody to basically bitch slap them. That 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 is a power move. Uh huh. I love her. I don't. 
I don't support her, but I love her. I I support women's wrongs, actually. (laughs) Unfortunately, I'm gay. (laughs) She is, oh my god, she is so fun, and we'll definitely spend a hefty chunk of time talking about her, because there's a lot to go over there. And disability isn't something that's really come up in previous Gundams. The closest thing I can think of is Gundam Thunderbolt, uh, which was an ONA fairly recently. But in that story, it's about, uh, in part, Xeon pilots who are equipped with prosthetics because they've lost their legs and arms in battle, uh, put into mobile suits that have been modified to accommodate those prosthetics and then basically shoved right out into battle. So it's a little more about this, you know, this literally dehumanizing system. Right, it's like uh, the the, downside, the the downfall of a lot of cyberpunk, where it takes augmentation as this sort of inherently dehumanizing thing, rather than something assistive and hopeful, which I like cyberpunk, but it's kind of a bummer. It's kind of an ableist bummer. But Chiwich mm-hmm. takes a more hopeful, or at least neutral approach to it. Like, the gun system is not inherently bad, it's just complicated. And a good part of the second half of this season is spent with, you know, Soleta and company, you know, trying to take this research back into a more positive and societally useful direction. Yeah, which I'm very interested to see where it goes with that. Honestly, so much of of how the themes develop depends on how long the show gets to be. I'm Because traditionally, every Gundam gets to be 50 episodes, but there are a couple exceptions, right? Was, was, how long was IBO? Wasn't it only 20 some odd? No, it was two seasons, so 50 total. Oh, it was 50 total. You were correct. Yeah, maybe this one will be a 50 or a 49. Honestly, uh, it's, it has to be at least 36 episodes for it to be rounded out. Hopefully they get a full 50, but if they can't stick to that, 36 will probably be survivable. Yeah, I'm torn because I think this cast is so well developed that uh, you could do 50, but I also wonder if, I, I hope it is not a production that feels the need to have the traditional number of episodes at the expense of narrative development. Can you tell which Gundam was my first Gundam? <laughs> oh, yeah, I I agree. That's why I said I was okay with 36, because honestly, I feel like 50 would be too long for this one. We've already gone so far, and while I do fear... Um, stuff getting lost in the sauce, especially the political world building. If it's too short, it could get even more lost in the sauce if it's too long. Mm-hmm. You gotta find a balance in the middle there, I think. That's my opinion. Yeah, no. That's where I stand. Especially with the, the element of, uh, with Ilan's character specifically, this this uh, element of face swapping or, you know, the theories about whether Suleta herself might be a clone given timeline discrepancies and the way she talks to Ariel. Like, you don't want to do too much pop and swap character stuff. Otherwise, the impact of a, of a death loses its punch, which I think could be a danger if the show went on too long. Yep, that's why I, I think the Utena length of 39 episodes honestly wouldn't be terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Speaking of Otena, something else that makes G-Witch unique. It real gay! It real gay! It is so gay. I love it. I just, I love them so much and their feelings. And I, I appreciate the way that Sileta and Mirina's relationship hasn't yet had that conversation of, oh, this isn't just a function. We really like each other. And, you know, that's going to be put off for a while now, given the finale of part one. Uh but I like that it it doesn't... How do I put this? A lot of series that I feel like are queer and coded by virtue of using uh, a traditional romantic structure and putting characters in it, even though they never formally confess, but we're meant, you know, we're sort of meant to imply um, based on the structure, feel the need to have other characters or the writing itself pop in every now and again to do basically a, a quiet version of a no homo where we're sort of reassured that this isn't going to ever textually happen. Whereas I think Soleta and Mirine's relationship has really gotten a chance to develop very earnestly where it's just taken as read that, yeah, Soleta might realize that, that she likes Mirine, even though she's never really considered her own sexuality outside of these normative boxes that she's seen in anime. 
Yeah, and I feel like the show is taking it seriously. And it's not necessarily doing so through big, obvious conversations where they talk about how seriously they're taking this relationship. But it's in things like uh, Meereen's big breakdown at the end of episode 10, or um, even just the way Suleta, over the course of the show, takes her title of the groom more and more seriously. And just the, the, the language she used makes it clear, like, she doesn't see this as just a role. Yeah, and the fact that they even use that bride and groom um, language to begin with is astounding. Like, that surprised me. I was like, whoa! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then I was just like, these are going to be role titles, right? They're going to do the Nahomo thing, right? Nope. And then now we're all the way at email me three times a day! Yeah. Uh, we're, Take care we're, of my plants! Clean my room! The literal um, rose garden euphemism from Utena, but it's tomatoes mm-hmm. instead. Yeah, I like clearly the bride stuff originated from Utena, but um, oh, yeah, oh, but totally. I, I think that's an interesting difference there. Where I don't, I don't get mad about Utena because I think it's so centered as a character tick that Utena is struggling with a lot of internal, internalized homophobia and all of that, and that's why she keeps. And that's part of what the show is critiquing. But it is nice to have a series that just doesn't feel the need to do that. It just, sure, maybe Tileta is still thinking like, well, I'd kind of like to go out on a date with a boy. I don't know. Maybe? But it's very casual about it. The casualness of it all is so nice. I, it's mostly framed through Soleta's wish list. Like, she's got her ideas, but, you know, and she's checked off a lot of boxes so far of, you know... Things like, you know, make a joke where everybody laughs and such like that. And maybe she will go off her wish list or add more things to oh her wish god, list. Oh my god, her wish list, though. Who knows? Ah! <laughs> it is, it is, the, it is a, it's real. I feel Yeah, I know you much. have a lot of feelings about, like, uh, about Saleta being a, a very readable autistic character. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, I can go into this. So... For reference, if you haven't found my Twitter already by now, um, I am an autistic person. I was diagnosed at a very young age and nothing's changed. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I read Suleta as autistic pretty quick. Obviously not prologue quick because there was way too much going on. But pretty much right off the bat, I was like, "Oh, oh, wow. I immediately saw aspects of like... First, it was aspects of other autistic people I knew in my life, and then I started seeing aspects of, like, myself. It's mostly with the way she moves her body, like, the way it kind of, like, rocks around as she walks, Um, the way that her hands move. It's the way that her eyes kind of dart around. She can make eye contact for some extended periods of time, but you notice that she always looks away. Just as most autistic people cannot maintain eye contact, most autistic people move their hands around or rock their bodies. Is what's called stimming. It's a form of emotional regulation that we end up doing. And of course, her lack of um, ability to pick up social cues and other things around her, just that, you know, just like that veil over how she perceives the world around her, not even just from her living in isolation, even though especially that can compound on it, as I was also an autistic person who grew up in a pretty remote environment. So to me, it was very visible. And as the show went on, it didn't just plateau and remain the same. It just became more and more obvious. And I'm just like, every episode is like, oh my gosh, she she is so autistic. You can't just tell me that she's not. Like there was something new with every single episode. It was fantastic. And it didn't feel dehumanizing in any way. It was presented as a matter of fact. And people knew that she was a little weird, but people in earnestness liked her, which Mm -hmm. is good. I'm glad they didn't kind of go down the more sad route. Of course, they showed her insecurities with what I viewed as rejection-sensitive dysphoria, where she really does think in absolutes. Mm -hmm. Like when something doesn't quite go the way she plans it to, it's just an absolute veer to the complete left or the complete right um instead of just you know being in a possible gray area i personally struggle with that and i'm sure most autistic people who are listening to this can say the same thing um so that also too just all these things together and more things that i can't even remember off the top of my head the the way she really tries to overcompensate and but then doesn't ask for clarification because she's 
trying not to show that she didn't understand something is a mood. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, Suleta for me, I definitely see the coding. Like she falls for me in sort of uh, that, that's that third tier of like, so for like, tears sounds qualitative and I don't mean it that way, but just for sake of language, you know, you have a, 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 like tier, if we call tier one, we're using the word autistic, which I haven't seen too much in anime outside of like nonfiction um, works like my brain is different or, and then you, for tier two, you've got like something like Yuri is my job where, oh, oh girl, you're very autistic. And you have lots of characters talk overtly about how she can't read the room and how she's very blunt and that kinds of thing. And we have explicit things where we're talking about these directly without using necessarily the technical terms. Then Suleta's like one to the side of that where I, I could technically see how these character traits came about because you wanted to write her as being anxious or traumatized, but also it all works together really cohesively as a character reading in a way that even if it wasn't intense intentional i think that it's uh it's strong and standalone and viable if that makes sense yeah and it's and i feel like a lot of gundam characters are written this way there has been a pretty popular theory since i started poking around at gundam stuff on the internet a billion years ago uh, going back to UC Gundam stuff, a lot of people believe that a good chunk of new types, not cyber new types so much, but just like new types, cyber new types are like genetically created for those who are not familiar um, versus those who are came, who became a new type out of, you know, who were born that way or eventually evolved into that state of being. People, a lot of people believe that new types are also autistic. Like I firmly believe that Amaro is autistic and Lala soon is also autistic. So I feel like whoever wrote Suleta's character and whoever designed her pulled a lot from mm -hmm. that. And then we're like, let's just add some extra steps here. Like, like you said, she is written with such, with such care. I think the character writing in, in G witch is what kept, keeps me coming back. Cause I like the, the political commentary, but I think for me, I am somebody who has, who is sort of reluctant to get into space opera, uh, political drama stuff. Like I, I'll do, I'll watch Galactic Heroes someday. I promise people, but I am more, <laughs> um, I'm more of a courtly intrigue type person. And I think I would categorize the difference as being space opera or political theater stories are ones where, characters sort of stand as uh, metonymous to the ideals that they're arguing over and, and courtly intrigue are stories where the supposed ideals or social structures being fought over are excuses for these interpersonal uh, conflicts right and I don't think I don't think that uh, G Witch is fully a, a courtly intrigue type series. I think it very is earnest about the sociopolitical stuff it wants to talk about, but because it forefronts its characters so much and lets their personal wants color this stuff that is happening politically, it really drew me in as somebody who's not traditionally into the genre. And while I'm not coming at Zuleta from the, the same perspective you two are, even then, she's just an incredibly endearing protagonist, like someone who just really draws you in. You know, she's just so sweet and naive and earnest. She's just the sweet little Danukia of a girl. And even things like the way the show handles the how her nervous stutter, because she very often nervously stutters whenever she has to talk to anybody. But uh, it e that stutter eases up in the moments where she's more confident in people, whether it's her mother or in Miurin and it's it's a little it's a subtle thing but it's it's such a, a well done thing it just that really informs her character i also love how i get, i bang on a lot about how miscommunication as a narrative device uh tends to get short shrift because it's often done badly but i really like how the third the a lot of the second act of this season 
comes down to a a miscommunication between Saleta and Miorine because they are both trying so hard to be strong for each other and not realizing that they're tripping up the other person's uh, anxieties where, you know, Suleta has to prove that she is useful and that's how she knows that she is worth being here and she is valued. Whereas for Miorine, she's like, uh, you know, she wants to be so good and competent that she feel she can make Suleta feel like she doesn't have to worry or work so hard anymore. And they're inadvertently making each other sad and then I did a cry. <laughs> Speaking of characters that make you cry, we, we gotta talk about the surprise best boy of the season, uh, Gwell, aka Bob. And Bob. admittedly at the start there I love Bob. There are a lot of people who are trying to ascribe like the various characters from Utna to the sporting cast of G Witch. Which I think and you Gwell, can. Oh yeah, you definitely can. And Gwell absolutely fits Sionji, and in fact, he might be the biggest Sionji to ever Sionji in the history of anime. Uh-huh. They made him homeless. They made him homeless! His, his arc, going from the, you know this spoiled rich boy bully to literally living in the woods to now having to work a part-time job on a, on a space freighter under an alias because dad basically kicked him out of the home and the company. It's just... How did he get so moe? How did he get so moe? By getting his ass kicked a lot. And he stopped using that hair gel. That hair gel, just just kick it out. And his hair flopped down a little bit more naturally. And I was like, there we go. I I have a soft spot for Sionji as a uh, character, just because I read him as a uh, deeply self-loathing closeted gay. But also, he sucks for a lot of Utena. And I think one of the smart things that that G-Witch did was to basically speed run Sionji's arc where we get to the sad boy toxic masculinity uh, within the first six episodes instead of like the first 30. Yeah, he literally goes from I'm going to fight you to will you marry me with the implicit thing of, so you'll protect me from my dad. And now his dad is dead by his own oh. dad. So that's fun. We will see where this goes from here. That is not, I, because I, I mean, I'm not ready to give up this theory yet, but I was positive that Gwell has death flags on him, right? Because he just absolutely screams of this very strident, brash uh, character who believes in fighting as an honorable, noble thing who then dies in a very stupid way because we're illustrating that there is no honor in fighting and it's just violence uh, that begets violence and more trauma. And uh, my 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 theory is still that it will have something to do with uh, him dying because Shadik... Uh, inadvertently puts him in a uh in a in a dangerous spot while trying to secure his own position for maximum tragic irony points i don't know if they'll do that now that they've gone the oh no i am i have been broken by murdering my own father but i'm still keeping it on the table because that's a very gundam thing i genuinely thought he was oh i genuinely thought he was going to die in episode 12 i I thought like yeah this is gonna die this episode i'm not ready and then it was his dad, and I was like, please don't do this to me. Why did you do this to me? Ugh. Not angry, but, like, I was in absolute anguish on my couch on a Sunday morning. I, I don't know. I, it's nothing more than a feeling in this point, and other than the fact that he's taken on an alias at this point. I have the weirdest feeling Gwell's gonna become a Char. Like, he's he's got the desire for revenge. He's already got an alias. All he needs is a mask. But we already have our Char. What if your Char was the mommy issues instead? We can have multiple Shars. They can embody different facets of Char. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That 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 is the the ultimate the ultimate question is, what do we do with multiple different types of Char? <laughs> so I do I do want to shout out. We don't have time to talk about every good character. I know. Damn. Like, all the kids of Earth House are great. I love the way that, like queerness and disability, fatness is just normalized and treated yes. as cute and adorable. What, yes. What's her name? Malik? Malik? Mm-hmm. Like, she just has boyfriends? And, and it, her weight is not a big deal? And, of course, Choo Choo, who might, you know, behind Gwell as, you know, breakout favorite of the show. Mm-hmm. With the punch heard round the world. She's so good. Those girls never came back, either. I think they're good. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and 
Shadik is super interesting too, as like this character. I am not qualified to talk about the racial elements, but it definitely feels like they are there. Where he's like the most notable brown-skinned, uh, uh, like the he is uh, in the upper echelons of these characters. He is notably darker skinned than a lot of other of the air types, and he feels this constant sense of needing to prove why he deserves this space but also he has to do it in this way where he constantly seems pleasant and approachable and unthreatening unlike well like i think yeah. there's a lot going on with his character in addition to him being toga yes i was going to say he's absolutely the um, toga to gwell sayanji i was also about to say as um i had a co-worker named shadik shadik in reality is not spelled like that it is spelled s-a-d-i-q which I, I assume it's the same name root that the whoever named him made. And that name, to me, ironically means an honest, true friend. Oh. Which, ooh. And Nika's word, um, it could, Nika's name probably comes from, you know, referencing back to the figure of Nike, Greek for victory. But also it's possible that her name is Persian, which... I believe I think her Persian name also means um, also like good and true. I don't think it means honest so much, but like good. So there's also like several like lacings of irony within their names. I mean, Gundam least. loves a a meaningful name. I have to assume that Gwell going under Bob is poking fun at the fact that all Gundam characters have ridiculous names. <laughs> Bobu. But before we get too far, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, Maureen as well, because mm -hmm. it, it, it'd be really easy to just, you know, slot her as just another Sundere, you know, almost right down to the Bacas. But, you know, over the course of the show, we see a lot more to that because she has very good reason to resent her father and the control he implements over her life and the way he uses her as a tool. And, you know, over the course of the show, we not only see her open up to Suleta, who is probably the first person in all of her 17 years who didn't approach her as basically an acquisition tool, but also the way she kind of has to, I guess, embrace her, her legacy as Delling's daughter to have to actually use those business skills to save Suleta midway through the show and, and to fund the gunned arm company complete with that amazing advertiser. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, in a weird way, it almost starts to mend her relationship with her dad. Until the end of the, the season. I am obsessed with the, uh, with, with the sort of inverse relationship that the, the series pulls off uh, between Mirene's relationship with her dad and Celeste's relationship with her mom. Where they sort of end up swapping places in terms of their parental relationships by, by episode 12. And like, that's good ass writing. Yes, it is, and it's clearly very purposeful. Mm-hmm. And but so we, as we get into the last quarter of the podcast here, I feel like that's perhaps enough time to begin to talk for a fraction of a second about Prospera, who has a lot going on. Very much, even if you're just going by the prologue, because like Meereen, she also has very good reasons to want revenge against Delling. Literally, you know, destroyed her life. But as you know, as we go on. You know, it definitely comes more about kind of the end, whether she's using the ends to justify the means, the ends being her daughter. And yeah, I am so fascinated with Prospero specifically because she's so in the background right now. I can't help constantly questioning how much the predictions I make about her character stem specifically from my familiarity with the franchise and franchise traditions where... Like, to me, ah, clearly this is a character about how people who have been traumatized and been victims become victimizers uh, because their anger leads them to use other people as pawns. And it seems so clear to me in just the little ways that she's been sinister. But on in text, she's really supported Suleta um, in, in basic concrete terms. Yeah, I know a lot of people see her, you know, as possibly the second coming of Gendo in the way she's using her daughter. But if anything, I think it's more sinister if she really does love and support Suleta and still uses her for, uh, for her own revenge. 
Yeah, I firmly believe in that theory. There's, I, I feel like she definitely has an earnest love for her daughter, but she has just been driven so far over the edge, and she, yeah, so far over the edge since what we've seen in the prologue, that you know she's undergone so much to change her appearance and all these things. Even though she doesn't seem to lie about being, you know, Suleta's mother, if Suleta is who we think she is, um. That I honestly think that she still earnestly loves her and supports her, even if um, she was willing to uh, shove possibly uh, something into Ariel. I, I'm on that train. There's something. There is something wrong that Prospero was able to, or was Prospero chose to, you know, put something in the Ariel, and still loves Suleta with such earnestness that she will push her into doing these things, maybe it's because she thinks it's what's best for her. It could be mother knows best. I, I do, because like, I agree. I think that Prospera loves her daughter. I think she's sincere about that. But I also think, especially if Suleta is, uh, is a, a 2.0 kind of situation and her quote-unquote real daughter is in the aerial, then maybe there is kind of that element of... I don't think she would ever let Suleta die, but... I think maybe she thinks there are a certain number of things of, well, ah, she'll come back from that, where it's, uh, I need to do this more than I need to protect my daughter's mental health as long as her physical health is okay. I think it's definitely an abuse of Suleta's resilience because I've, you know, I'm, you've met people in your life that are, are very resilient people, but, you know, people know or some people know that this person is resilient, so they're willing to put them through stressful situations time and time again because, oh, they'll get back up. Oh, they'll get back up. They're resilient. They're strong. They're always the, the check-in-on-your-strong-friends kind of situation. And there's no better example of that than uh, that final episode when Prospero basically kind of activates Suleta's Manchurian candidate powers. See, I don't necessarily buy into that theory. I think it's viable, but I think we don't know yet. That's true. It, it, it's iffy. But something else that's also interesting is like the weird, I guess for lack of better phrase, family dynamic between Prospera, Suleta, and the Ariel, the Gundam itself, because of the way Suleta approaches the Ariel, that she treats it like a sibling and talks to it in such a manner. And the suit responds in kind. Yeah, the suit definitely talks back. There is something going on there. Bri, did you read the short story that was up on Gundam Info? Because that goes even more into that I as have... well. There is a short little novella about, or it's from the Ariel's perspective, and it is yeah, interesting. Yeah, no, do you want to, um... Is that still up? Is that still up? I bet it should be. Gundam, Gundam Info has a G-Witch website, and I believe um, the short story is up there. Do you want to kind of summarize it a little bit for folks at home? In short, it's like an interim period between the um, the prologue and episode one, effectively, where it's Ariel basically watching over Suleta as time goes on, and then Suleta slowly, you know, effectively emerges from her cocoon as she is ready to go to school. Oh. As, you know, as she goes from age four to, I believe it was 16 was the age they gave her. Effectively, sixteen or she—I think seventeen, but yeah, younger than she should 17. be given the time skip. Yeah, I know that. Um, I saw people pointing out that there is almost uh, the the way that is written. There is almost a magical property to Prospera's words for um, Suleta, which I think I, I think there is a vagueness to there, and I think that's why it's interesting that folks have been really split on whether it's full-on an activation, whether it's some element of Prospera knows that she can push her daughter into this behavior and that's advantageous for her right now, you know, we'll deal with it later, it's fine as long as she's not troubled, or whether it's fully um, Suleta just completely emotionally dissociating at the end there, because she is not okay. No, she is not. Yeah, no... I honestly think, because if I'm writing, you know, the, the autism theory here, I, will I ever think it's canonized? Honestly, no. But neurodivergent people, when put into very stressful situations, when 
a trusted figure approaches them in says stressful situation um as somebody who has been there who has been with a person that i learned in hindsight to not trust you know if a person knows this weakness they will try to implant something in your head by assuring you that you know this doing this sort of thing is fine or going down this path is fine and you will be effectively gaslit into believing it's fine mm-hmm. and you'll go through with it and you'll only realize what happens in hindsight with whatever path you've gone or whatever you've done yeah and i i think it's pretty crucial that i don't think I think Miri and I would have been uh, inevitably traumatized uh, because how can you not? But I don't think she'd have been upset if Suleta was upset, right? It's that moment of human connection where not only has something horrifying happened, this is not how she would know Suleta to react in any way. And she feels alone, like completely alone in her horror uh, dealing with this. Yeah, I think this is Suleta. I mean, I don't even think Suleta has been exposed to much death even prior to this, aside from the prologue. But does she remember that if Suleta is airy? Even assuming that that theory doesn't exist, she may not even remember it. So, truly, this could be a, a, since she grew up in a sheltered place, this could be her first exposure to such a thing. So maybe she doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and because it's Gundam we are meant to take it seriously as the audience. I think even like on the one hand, fuck that guy. On the other hand, Gundam (laughs) is, is so determinedly uh, dedicated to, even if you kill somebody that you had to kill, you have to deal with the fact that you ended a life of, of somebody else who was living and breathing. And that's a serious thing, even if ultimately it had to be done. Yeah, the cost, Suleta does not understand the cost of life that she has taken, even if it is an, an antagonizing force. She has still taken a life, and that does, you know, that costs something. And in this instance, life was cheapened, not for the audience, but for Suleta, just because she doesn't understand. And it could have easily just been reflexive. Like, just, she saw me in danger, and just smack! <laughs> Mosquito! <laughs> yeah, because she has the aerial, she is so... She is disconnected from acts of violence. Like, Ariel protects her in more ways than one, in ways that I think we're starting to get hints of may not be good for her. Yeah, we'll see where the second season takes us. I hope it takes us in a well-written direction, regardless of the direction it goes. Yeah, do either of you have, like, big, big swing theories about what might, uh, where we might go from here? I don't know if I have any big theories. I mean, aside from my Gwell potentially becoming a Char theory, um, I I hope we see more of the Earth side of the conflict because it's only really been teased a little bit uh, between kind of the, the have and have not quality and uh, what we've seen with the the Earth witches as they're called, uh, Sophie and uh, I forget the other pilot girl's name, Norea. That's it. I, I I hope we see. I'm I'm certain we'll see more of Sophie because she's she's gone full sicko mode. She's definitely coming back. But I do hope we see more of that side. And I, mostly at this point, I'm I'm along for this ride. I'm not getting too deep into theories. I'm content to let this show take me in whatever direction it wished. Mm-hmm. And like, I am too, generally. Yeah. Um, I honestly don't have too many big theories myself. Um, other than I kind of believe in the Suleta isn't airy theory, but even if that isn't true, there is something wrong with the Ariel. There is someone in there. I don't know who that someone is, or maybe it's multiple people. Uh, so a friend of ours made a joke about somebody shoved an entire kindergarten class in there, and I believe that. I believe that. You, you know who I'm talking about, Megan. <laughs> Incredible. 10 out of 10. Yeah, I like. I'm not prepared to say... Uh, Man, this is definitely going to go someplace great and uh, subsequently curse it because, you know, Wonder Egg priority was a thing. But so far, I'm very confident in what they've set up. And I really, I have a higher confidence in their ability to pull it off because it has been so character centric, which means that there's a higher chance that as long as the, the emotional narratives pay off, it's more survivable if they fumble a political theme somewhere along the way, you know? Also, I don't care about the how and the why. I hope Suleta and Mirin kiss just because it would drive people on Twitter crazy. 
Yes. For both good and bad. Yeah, that, that, that show will be a success if they kiss, no matter what. It will be, even if it ends catastrophically, like in a way that is badly written, at least G-Witch will remain interesting. Even just on that note, and even just from what we've seen so far, if, if it, even if it ends spectacularly badly, the spectacular, keep that word in mind, it'll be still spectacular. Mm-hmm. Please let the animators rest, they're clearly very tired. Isn't that true for every show these days? It's true, constantly. <sighs> I, I'm, I'm very concerned about all of them. Also, it, from what I hear, the aerial uh, models are selling super well, which my understanding is that that's key to the ongoing success of any Gundam. Yes, uh, the show's doing well in the ratings, and yes, the gunpla are flying off the shelves. At one point, uh, the aerial was so sold out at some Japanese stores that they had to fill the shelf space with uh, aerial brand potato chips, or what are they, corn chips? <laughs> yeah, it was their corn chips, and even those were flying off the shelves, and then they eventually replaced them with um, gun tank gunpla at Bit Camera. Bit Camera is like a, it's a tech store over there. Nice. Uh, let's see. I Now, uh, with any hope, we can get back together and talk about the second half after it finishes up. But while folks are waiting for uh, G-Witch to come back, uh, do either of you have a Gundam series that is available streaming that folks who have sort of become curious about the larger franchise should uh, through G-Witch should check out next? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's always the question. Um, honestly, for a standalone one that honestly reminded me a little bit of G-Witch, at least in its early episodes, was G-Gundam, which is currently available on Crunchyroll, although they're using a, a lousy DVD-era master. I'm not sure if it's still streaming in HD on Gundam Info's YouTube channel. Uh, it is definitely available on Blu-ray. That one is kind of curious. It was the first AU series. Uh it, it's extremely shonen. It, it, it's very much a, a battle tournament sort of show, but I like the way uh, it kind of reverses and does its own spin on some of the common themes of Gundam. Uh, it, it's a fabulous looking show. It's got great music. Uh, it's one of Tomokazu Seki's best performances as the lead Domon. Uh, it's an, uh, a nostalgic favorite for people who watched it on Toonami. It gets a lot of crap from people because, oh, it's not a proper Gundam. It's not a proper UC show. But screw that. I, I love G Gundam. It's one of Imagawa's best shows. Please watch it. Um, One that would be streaming. Hi, I bad recommendation or not. Intimidating recommendation or not. I, I would say go back to the first Gundam. I think it's sublime. I'm not talking the movie trilogy, even though that is less intimidating. It is only three, you know, 90 minute films. I like the original TV series. I honestly think the best place to start is always at the beginning. But if you want something shorter and less intimidating, while not available on streaming like um, the Gundam films and the Gundam TV show are, War in the Pocket is short and sweet. And if you want something to punch you in the gut like the last episode of this um, series did, War in the Pocket will do that. I will second this. It was the first animated Gundam I ever watched, and it is fantastic and it requires despite being a uc era story it requires very little homework to get into it even if you didn't do any homework you can pick up on it pretty quick yeah we have uh actually one of the very early articles on the site was about war in the pocket i'll drop that in the show notes for folks who maybe want to read up a little more before potentially hunting it down but those are both those are both great uh options i think let's see i and uh, with that in mind, gosh, we could still go on for another hour. There are whole characters we didn't touch on at all, but... I know! This is such a rich series, and I'm loving it so much. Thank you both for joining me here. Uh, and like I said, hopefully we will get to do this again in a couple of months. And thank you uh, for joining us at home, too, Anafam. If you liked what you heard here, you can find more from the team by going to animefeminist.com where we have more articles and podcasts for your perusal. If you really liked what you heard, consider checking us a dollar a month. We have a Patreon at patreon.com slash anime feminist. We also have a Kofi that's uh, slash anime feminist for folks who want to deal with more one-off donations or don't want to deal with Patreons 
whole nonsense. We have a store where you can get cool anime merch, uh, like our Trans Magical Girl series, or I think this will be out in time. If it's not, Peter, please cut this. Or our very cool new Watch More Shoujo design, which I am so happy about and in love with. Ooh. We are on social media as well. You can find us on Twitter at Anime Feminist, on Tumblr at Anime Feminist, as well as on Co-Host and Mastodon under Anime Feminist. Thank you so much, Anafam. Uh, please do drop your comments below when, uh, on whether you'd like to see a podcast specifically dedicated to women in the Gundam franchise, or your, just your thoughts and screaming about G-Witch. And until next time, we'll see you later. Bye.